0: Welcome to Basecamp, a Climbing Magazine podcast. Kevin Riley here. Thank you for tuning in. And if you've already subscribed, thank you again. If you have not, you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. That way you get the episodes as soon as they're released. Have a great episode for you all. Really enjoyed sitting down with our two guests. Our first interview features Chris Kelman, who I caught up with during the Outdoor Retailer Show in Denver, Colorado. Chris is a writer, a guidebook author, and a journalist that recently self-published As Above, So Below, A Climbing Story. It's a gripping tale of a father-son adventure in the mountains of Patagonia. I don't want to spoil this story, so I'll just say the book touches on a number of different themes, including the dynamics within a climbing family, some of the inherent risks of climbing, and the motivation that drives climbers like us to take those risks. The book kept me up late at night, eagerly turning pages, waiting to see how it's all going to unfold. It's entertaining and thought-provoking, and I really enjoyed the read. Chris also wrote the Index Town Walls, a guide to Washington's finest crag. talked a little bit about that as well. Then we have an interview with Daniel Woods, who needs no introduction, discussing his early days when he dominated the competitive climbing circuit, what it's like to be a famous professional climber, Why he has recently turned his attention to repeating some of the hardest sport climbs in the world, why 2017 was such a tough year for him and how things have improved since then, what goals he has set for himself as he approaches the Big 3 0, and much, much more. But first, a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by The Access Fund. Did you know one in five climbing areas in the United States is threatened by an access issue? Whether it's private land, loss of development, public land managers over-regulating climbing, or climber impacts degrading the environment, the list of threats is long and constantly evolving. At Access Fund, they're on a mission to protect climbing access and the integrity of America's outdoor climbing areas. See how you can get involved at accessfund.org. How's your, How's your OR going? Oh, it's going
1: pretty good. Um, this, this is it for me. I, I can only muster the energy for like two days. Yeah, you're I'm, done, huh? Yeah, then where, I'm toast. <laughs>
0: where Where are you heading after this?
1: Um, I'm headed up to Washington.
0: Nice. Washington
1: State, going to go base out of Index for about a month.
0: That's awesome. So you wrote a guidebook for Index, right? I Was did, it, yeah. Yeah, how did that all come about? Is well, that your local crag?
1: It was, at the time, I was living there. I was a climbing ranger at Mount Rainier. Oh, sweet. Yeah, I I went out to Washington for that job. Didn't really know anything about Index. Uh And then I absolutely fell in love with the place on day one. And every day after that, you know, the love just got deeper and deeper. Uh And the guidebook was out of print by like 10 years. Uh So I kind of asked around the community to see if anyone else would be interested in doing it because you know, I was basically a newbie there. Mm-hmm. Um, but no one else seemed to have the interest or the bandwidth, so I decided to do it myself.
0: So how long did that take to compile?
1: Um, that took about three, uh, oh gosh, I don't know, three or four years, uh-huh. I think, I want to say. And, um, and I should mention also, I didn't do it by myself. I did it with Uh, my friend, Maddie Van Bean, who's an absolutely incredible photographer. Uh Um, So I kind of did all the words, he did all the photos, and then we worked with Sharp End Publishing, who did a fantastic job with the book.
0: Yeah, it's just, I think about putting together a guidebook, and it seems horrifying, just because of all the fact-checking,
1: right? and then
0: all the locals who fact-check for you.
1: Totally. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, on the one hand, it can be hard, because you might get five different idea like you know five people might say oh that's 11a it's 11c it's 12b you know you uh-huh. get a wide range especially at index but at the same time it's cool that there's especially in index there's a really great community so if you have a question you can ask mm-hmm. you know other places that may have less of a of a vibrant climbing community you may have a really hard time tracking someone down to ask better information
0: yeah yeah so i've so. seen tons of photos of index everyone tells mm. me i have to go there yeah what do you love most about the area
1: oh man i mean it's like it's in this beautiful river valley the skycomish river valley and um it's you know salmon run on it in the fall in the spring there are salmon berries um there's oyster mushrooms it's like being in a rainforest it is a rainforest. Yeah and then so you're in this absolutely beautiful area you could go there and not climb and still just Mm -hmm. have
0: a fantastic time and what's the peak season over there is it Uh, like everything else in the fall
1: yeah i mean fall can get a little rainy like september is probably the best month Uh um if you're local to washington your best days are probably going to be a few random ones scattered in december and january nice but um most people i would say the season is like June to uh, June to October. Yeah.
0: Okay. So, Chris, where did you grow up? Where are you originally from?
1: Um, I grew up in Northern Virginia, like right outside of Washington D.C. Okay. Yeah.
0: And how did you get into climbing initially?
1: Yeah. Um. So I started climbing in a gym, mm-hmm. um, sport rock climbing gym in Sterling. Mm-hmm. And um. And when was this in? That I was 16 years old. Okay. So that was 17 years ago. Yeah. For me, the first thing that drew me to the sport was problem solving. So it was like bouldering. Like I remember day one going and trying a boulder problem, falling over and over again in the same place, and then learning some new beta, uh, a new sequence or something that allowed me to finish the problem. And it was cool because I thought the limitation was my physical strength, but it wasn't. It was like my problem solving. And that hooked me from the start.
0: Let's talk about the book a little bit, As Above, So Below, A Climbing Story. Uh Where did the title come from?
1: Yeah, um, it's actually from, like, I should actually know the answer better. It's some, I think it's Hermes Tremagistias or something, like, some Greek philosopher had, like, these emerald tablets, and, and one of the, you know, maxims on those was, like, you know, that which is above is the same as that which is below. And the the expressions come from there.
0: Uh And I don't want to give away too much, Mm -hmm. but why did you write this story?
1: Yeah. I mean, for me, I think the thing is I had, I had dealt with some death like in my, in my life from within the climbing community Mm -hmm. and it sort of came in a string of incidents and, Before I felt like I really had any time to process that, um, my girlfriend, who's still my current girlfriend, her father came down with cancer and Mm -hmm. ended up, we moved back to Maryland to be with the family. And uh, it was just, yeah, it was kind of a dark time for me. And uh, there was no, I I had not done anything to process any of it. Mm -hmm. And so this book initially it wasn't like an intentional decision to write it. Like it was just coming out of me. Like I couldn't sleep at night. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like walking downstairs and I would pour myself a stiff drink and start writing. Uh So that's kind of like the long story short.
0: Yeah, man. I wish I had done something like that. I lost my parents did like the in-home hospice thing. Okay. And I just like find myself like, wandering around the house like not even trying to do anything it's just like you kind of just get lost right in this darkness sometimes i'm sorry to hear that yeah it's it's all right but i understand where you're coming from yeah so how did you get into writing initially
1: yeah so um i've been writing since i was like eight years old Mm -hmm. um the first things that I was doing were just basically copying my favorite authors. Uh-huh. Um, and, Who were your
0: favorite authors at the time? Oh,
1: at that time I wrote a short book that was based off Orson Scott cards, the abyss. Okay. There's like a, a great movie about uh-huh. the, they're like a Hollywood movie. Yeah, the yeah. Abyss. I really liked Michael Crichton. Uh-huh. Um, I think I wrote, I, I was super interested in gorillas at the time. So there was a, I, it wasn't Gorillas in the Mist, but there was some other book about uh, mountain gorillas in the Congo that I read, and then I tried to write a, a short book kind of in the same vein. <laughs> um, yeah, I was kind of a nerd, I guess. Yeah. Like,
0: well, you, did your parents read a lot? Yeah, okay. yeah. Like
1: some of my earliest memories are my dad reading um, like Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit to me as uh-huh. a kid.
0: So a lot of sci-fi, it sounds like. Right.
1: Well, my dad's a mathematician and my mom's an astro or she's an aeronautical phys- physicist. Uh-huh. <laughs> can barely say what she is. <laughs> um.
0: <laughs> so you were reading a lot when you were growing up. Did you kind of always know you wanted to be a writer professionally?
1: It's a good question. I wonder if maybe internally I knew. Um, uh-huh. I've always been the type that like where I grew up, it might snow once you uh, you know, once a winter. And I always loved snow, but I would never allow myself to believe it was going to snow. Cause if it didn't, and I believed it was going to, I'd be really disappointed. Mm -hmm. So for me, like writing as a career was the same thing. Like I never allowed myself to believe that could be possible. Um, because that was something that other people did, you know, like Mm -hmm. professionals, like people that had the chops and the skills and, um, so I always thought, oh, I'll do something, something else more pragmatic. Um, but I just have been writing my whole life, and uh-huh. at some point, I had some little spots of success here and there. Uh-huh. Like um, what? Like the first, the first thing I ever wrote about climbing at all was okay. in college, and I sent it off to Urban Climber.
0: Oh, I used to work for Irving. Carolina. Did you? Yeah. Super
1: cool. Okay, well... <laughs> Do um, you remember
0: who you were working with? Was it Joe Urato? Or... I, I
1: don't remember. Like a... You may remember you guys had like a finish line
0: thing. Yeah, oh yeah, I remember the finish so line.
1: So I... Yeah, it's like a little contest like... you ran. <laughs> and... um. So I sent something in. I never heard anything. And then my friend's mom sent me an uh, email. She was like, I saw your article in Urban Climber. And I was like, what article? Because I, I never heard anything.
0: <laughs> they didn't even tell you. Nobody <laughs>
1: told me. But when I did like, shoot an email to them... Um, yeah, they they were like, oops, sorry, yeah. you get a free crash pad. <laughs> um, that's but, awesome. But then shortly after, like, I was like, well, that was cool. I wonder, I was getting into trad climbing and yeah. alpinism at the time, so I was like, maybe I could write for alpinists. That would be really cool. Uh-huh. And they actually took the first piece I ever sent them.
0: Man, um, you're on a roll. Yeah,
1: <laughs> r- well, that's how it started. And I was like, <laughs> wow, being a writer seems really easy. You know, my first two or three stories, I had like a hundred percent pitch rate, and I'd say at this point, after almost, yeah, like a decade of doing it, I'd say it's like a twenty-five percent pitch rate. Mm-hmm. You know, yep. so
0: what I found fascinating reading your book was, you know, you kind of, well, a lot of climbing literature is nonfiction, and here right. is this piece of fiction. You know, why did you choose to write fiction?
1: Yeah, it's a good question and it's so it's hard to talk about the book without giving it away. I know exactly. Um, I have the
0: same problem. So,
1: so basically it's a it's a really tough story, right? Mm-hmm. I won't say too much more than that, but um I wanted to use fiction to talk about difficult subjects in a way that would be really hard to talk about in real life. I didn't want to hurt anyone's feelings. I didn't want to offend anyone. I didn't want to criticize people that have passed away in climbing accidents or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But I did want to kind of develop the idea of what a a climbing tragedy might look like.
0: Did it come naturally writing in the third person? You know, I read so <laughs> much climbing literature in first person, you know, it kind of like took me off guard a little bit.
1: It definitely didn't. Um yeah, I've I've written a couple of narratives, so this isn't my first. This isn't my first manuscript, but I, it's not my it, I wouldn't call it my wheelhouse. Like okay. it was a sustained effort. Yeah. Um what comes far more naturally to me are more like op-ed, philosophical inquiries. Uh-huh. So, yeah, I mean I just the middle part of the story was the first part that I wrote and that came kind of pouring out of me. Sure. And that's mostly internal monologue and dialogue Mm -hmm. and so that was actually fairly easy for me to do because it's like what's going on in your own brain yeah you know
0: yeah you know it definitely seemed as i was reading through the book at first i was like oh this is going to be some type of climbing tale about someone doing something badass in the mountains right and then it started to seem to me like oh this is about uh growing up in a climbing family and climbing dynamics within a family. Right, right. And then it became this like survival story. Yeah. So it was really interesting seeing like the progression. It's interesting hearing you saying that you kind of wrote this middle part first. Yeah. And kind of worked backwards or yeah whatever.
1: Yeah. Well, I went to this writing program up at the Banff Center in Canada mm-hmm. called the Mountain and Wilderness Writers Workshop. And at that point, I basically had the middle built. And I wasn't sure what I was going to do with it. I wasn't sure where to go, go with the story from there. And that's where I got a lot of really good instruction and really good ideas. And they and basically, it became evident really quickly that people wanted more. Mm-hmm. You know, they wanted some... You know, it's like you if you have a character in a story, you have to know why to care about that character. And so that's really what part one is about, you know, those building family dynamics and... Um, setting the location for the piece, you're trying to get the reader to to have some sort of relationship with the characters in the story so that when drama happens to those characters it matters to them. Yeah. You know?
0: Absolutely. So the main character, Dave, kinda mm-hmm. struggles with some of the decisions he's made throughout his life. You know, climbing mm-hmm. is a very selfish sport. Right, in many right. ways i mean do you find yourself struggling with some of those same yeah. things yourself
1: a- absolutely i mean yeah it's it's you know if i had to relate i don't have a child like david does in the story but if i had to relate to a character it would be him uh-huh. um i'm constantly struggling with climbing you know climbing for me is it's fun yeah like period it's just pure fun and in w- many ways it's like spiritually rejuvenating and mm-hmm. so that's important But at the same time, like, I think the world today is full of so many serious, serious issues um, of injustice and social inequality and ecological issues that for me personally, and I'm not judging anyone else, but for me personally to focus solely on climbing Mm -hmm. would feel like like I was uh, being kind of uh, it'd be like a hedonism, you know, just like I'm just going to have fun and that's it. Uh huh. And so I wanted the character in the story to struggle with that a little bit, Mm -hmm. because there's a big question in in the book of like, are you doing this because you want to or because you need to? Absolutely. Right. And I don't know if anyone has that answer individually. Like, I think it varies from person to person. I know.
0: I mean, I've been struggling with that ever since I started climbing and David in the stories in his mid fifties or something and still struggling with it. I'm like, God, I hope that's not me at that age. (laughs) Yeah. I hope so too. I mean, I have no idea,
1: but, um, all I know is that, you know, I've tried and I've tried to chop climbing out of my life too, Yeah. you know, because I was like, this doesn't help anyone. It's so selfish, but that didn't work.
0: Was there a big catalyst for that?
1: Um, I guess so. Like, Probably, yeah, at that time, my girlfriend five years and I had broken up.
0: I heard that story before. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um,
1: but I can't, it wasn't just that. It was like, that happened. I had quit a job that I wasn't feeling like that was working for me. I was missing a front tooth. Uh-huh. Um, I I was like, just looked like a bum. Everything about me said bum. I was living yeah. off unemployment. And like working on a pot farm in Oregon, Uh-huh. you know, and I was just like, I need to do something with my life. That's not just fun, you know, something that contributes and climbing's not that. Yeah. So I tried to quit, but it just made just me super kinda... depressed.
0: Now do you think writing has kind of fulfilled that and made you feel like you are contributing more? I mean,
1: it's super hard. Like I just, I wrote a piece recently about a big problem with uh, wild salmon populations in british columbia huh i wrote a piece recently they'll come out for outside about the voluntary climbing closure and devil's tower mm-hmm. social issues ecological issues pieces like that yeah. they make me feel like i'm doing something yeah absolutely but even this book which has sort of a social mission of trying to discuss you know accidents and death in the climbing community uh-huh when it's just about climbing it you know even if i pour my heart and soul into the piece I still feel like I'm left wanting a little. Mm-hmm. Like I want to write about things that that feel like they matter on a global scale. Yeah.
0: So the the book is set in Patagonia. Why mm-hmm. did you choose to locate it there?
1: Yeah. I mean, I've had I was down in El Chaltén once. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got skunked, my friend and I, on a an attempt of at Fitzroy. Yeah. Um, but that place has always been scary to me. Um, uh, before I went there, I had good friends going there. And, you know, I would get some cryptic email from them about so-and-so died or there was this accident or that. And everyone I've talked to that's ever climbed down there has had some kind of close call. Mm-hmm. And usually it's not a close call where it's like, oh, yeah, I was way above my gear and I didn't know whether to go for it or not. Usually it's like, yep, a Serac collapsed right next to me or there was rock fall and I couldn't do anything. And so for me, El Chal 10... Uh, has just been this this place of fear mm-hmm. that um, really revolves around variables you can't control
0: mm-hmm. so you also touch on briefly in El Chatin about development there and mm-hmm. commercialism there. yeah do you feel like it's a negative thing a positive thing it's in the book you almost leave it open
1: yeah well that if if i've left it open that's successful like yeah if, if it makes it look like i have an opinion that would be a, a failure because i'm i'm not informed enough to have an opinion okay but what i but i think it's i what i was trying to do with that is that's emblematic of climbing period mm-hmm. right climbing used to be this super fringe activity even when i started like 16 years ago there weren't like 12 gyms in the dc area there were three <laughs> of them they were all sport rock yeah. Uh, earth Treks didn't exist. Uh-huh. You know, and everybody kind of knew everybody. And when you went outside, even sport climbing, like, there just weren't that many people there. Uh-huh. And so, yeah, climbing has obviously exploded as an activity and a lifestyle. And so, as, it, as that happens with climbing, it also happens with climbing areas. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, let the reader decide. I think there are positives and negatives that come with that
0: growth. Yeah. So tell me about publishing the book. It's self published. Yeah. Why did you decide to go down that road? Well, I Or was guess... it made for you? <laughs> it my, it was kind of made for
1: me, yeah. <laughs> like initially I I you know, I had all these starry eyed ideas of like that that program I went to in Bam, like uh Katie Ives has been there, mm-hmm. Bernadette McDonald was there while I was there, Andy Kirkpatrick, Freddie Wilkinson, like a bunch of big names in climbing writing. Yeah. And so I was like Cool, I'm gonna get like a big publisher to carry the book, and that didn't happen. Basically, everything about the book was like you know, repellent for publishers. <laughs> They're like, climbing fiction, what is that? We don't, we've never yeah, heard of it, we're not gonna it. do it. Um, 20,000 words, no, you can't do that, it's gotta be 50. Um, hardbound, small, off shape, like illustrated, none of this makes any sense, uh-huh. and we don't know who you are, so we're not even gonna. <laughs> give you the time of day yeah so I really didn't have any other options but as soon as I did the Kickstarter and realized that I was actually gonna have the funds to do it Mm -hmm. I got really excited because self-publishing means you can do whatever the f you want yeah you get to call all the shots Uh uh-huh so I didn't have to like worry about whether it was gonna meet with someone's profit margins or not Mm -hmm. you know I was like no I'm going to, I'm going to hire Craig Muterlach to do the art and I'm going to pay him good. And I'm going to give him yeah. a bonus when we're done. And I'm going to hire Sarah to do a beautiful cover and we're going to uh-huh. make it look exactly the it way it is. a I, gorgeous book. My girlfriend
0: yeah. who isn't really into climbing, she was like, oh, this is such a nice looking book. Thanks. The yeah. illustrations are great. I was yeah. kind of hoping there were a few more of them. I know. Well, <laughs>
1: you know, Craig gave me an incredibly good rate. Uh-huh. Um, you know, it was like stealing from him um, <laughs> as it was. So I couldn't be more pleased. But fortunately, like Craig has tons of other work, you know, and there's yeah. a lot of artists of his caliber out there doing really cool things. So I couldn't get too many more in the book, but um, man, he he just nailed it. I was so happy with his work on that.
0: And so how is it doing for you?
1: You know, I've been super surprised that uh, it's doing really well. Like, I've sold about 200 copies in the first month that I've had them. Awesome. Um, My initial inventory was 1,000 copies. Mm -hmm. About 200 have gone to Kickstarter backers. Yep. And so I'm left with, like, 550 copies. Mm -hmm. And I've just barely started, like, tapping the retail store market. Sure. So a few, like, super core community climbing shops are carrying them around the Front Range, the Northeast, out in Washington State. But a lot of those sales have just been word of mouth. Mm -hmm. So I feel really honored that people are talking about the book and spreading the word about it on social media.
0: So what's next for you Well, on the writing side of things?
1: Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, uh, One of my main clients is uh, ramping up activities, so I'm going to be busy with some client work for a little bit. And then I do want to write sort of a follow up book, not necess- not like a sequel necessarily, mm-hmm. but another similar size, similar themed, like, like something that feels almost like a, uh, you know, a souvenir or like a keepsake. Yeah. The way this book does. And I hope within the next five years, I've got three of them. Okay. And then I can put those together in a collection and, and start looking for mainstream publishers. Yeah.
0: Well, again, thanks so much. I really enjoyed the book. It kept me up late last night, and I was super tired all day. So yeah. thank you. Hey, thank you, man. <laughs> I really appreciate you taking the time. All right. Take care.
1: All right. Later.
0: Well, that's our conversation with Chris Kelman, author of As Above, So Below, which you can find at chriskelman.com. Up next, Daniel Woods. Cool. Cool. All right. <laughs> Sweet. Here with Daniel Woods. Welcome, Daniel. Welcome. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so you're back here in Boulder. Yep. How's it been being back?
2: Um, It's been pretty nice to be back. Boulder's my home base. Uh-huh. Um, but it, at the same time, it's also nice to get out of Boulder and travel and climb on new rocks and stuff like that. Whenever I return back from a trip... I know Boulder pretty well. It's my comfort zone, uh-huh. so it's chill.
0: And what's your typical routine?
2: Um, So when I'm back home, typical routine, honestly, is either going to the tension climbing facility to train. Um, uh-huh. That's just outside of Denver. Or And tell me
0: about that place. I've never heard of it.
2: Yeah, so tension, um, they make the tension board. It's a bunch of wooden holds, um, a symmetric board where you can train your right side or left side. You can change the angle of the wall from like 30 to 55 degrees, but they also have a pretty big, like, Massive beast wall, uh-huh. and this wall is just littered with a ton of old school grips, new school grips, wooden holds, whatever. So, it's a good tool to like make up your own stuff, mm-hmm. train specifically for a project, and such like that. You so, enjoy that training, yeah? It's for me, it's the best type of training. It's fun to go into gyms and stuff too and like monkey around and sure. have fun, but if I need to get in shape for an outdoor project, I need I need that specific tool and Tension offers that, so.
0: Okay, so training's part of your routine. What else do you get into?
2: Um, Besides training, I hang out with friends, we go out at night, we have dinner, um, mm-hmm. watch movies, uh, go see live music shows, stuff like that. So um, just, yeah, whatever sounds fun and different. Um, stoked to go and try to get into it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> when did you get into climbing? You're from Texas originally?
2: Yeah, originally from Texas i started climbing when i was five wow your parents
0: get you into that
2: yeah my uh my dad got me into it i was part of a boy scout group and one of the activities was to go climb at this uh-huh. place called mineral well state park and it was crazy like from a young age i i climbed for the first time and even though i was so young it clicked with me it, it just felt right. Like I was like, Oh, I want to spend like the rest of my life doing this. Activity. Wow.
0: <laughs> was there a reason why was it like the adventure, the excitement, the uh, athleticism?
2: Yeah. I think, I think at the time I didn't really know why, cause I was so young, but now that I look back and reflect, um, I think, I think I just loved, um, being able to look at a piece of rock, understanding what the sequence is going to be mm-hmm. and kind of gets your head turning in a different way. And then I also like the athletic side where you get to feel your strength while you're moving and feel mm-hmm. your body while you're executing the sequence. And that's like, uh, for me at least, a pretty empowering feeling. And it, and it's addicting. It's like once you have a dose of it, then it, it lasts for a little bit, then you're on to the next and you, you need another one.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. How long did it take you to get into competitive climbing?
2: So I started competing at age nine. Um, my dad ended up moving my family to, or our family to Colorado. I actually grew up in Longmont. Okay. Um, but I would spend most of my time in Boulder cause that's where all the climbing gyms were. Mm-hmm. So when I moved to Colorado, that was when I started like getting pretty serious with it. I got involved with the BRC junior climbing team uh-huh. and then My coaches, like, taught us technique, how to train power. They took us outside every weekend, taught us how to climb outside. Cool. And stuff like that, so.
0: And how did your family get involved as well?
2: Um, so, my, I think... My dad shared the same addiction as I shared, mm-hmm. um, and it was a good experience because it it allowed us to spend a lot of time together. Like he was my main climbing partner growing up, he would uh-huh. drive me to all these locations, but then it gave him an excuse to also climb. So yeah. it worked out. My mom wasn't really into climbing back in the day, but she has like a fear of heights and stuff. But she. She supported it, and yeah. she was stoked that me and my dad were stoked on it. My sister got into it uh-huh. um, as well.
0: And are you older than your sister or younger? I'm older.
2: She's okay. 27 now. Okay, Yeah. Cool. We're pretty close. You're really
0: close. Does she live here as well?
2: Yeah, she does. Um, she lives in Denver, though. Oh, okay. Yeah.
0: Nice. And were you better than your dad, like, right off the bat? <laughs> or was there a time um, when your dad was stronger than you?
2: We de- Probably when I first started, we were definitely, like, the same ability. Um, I'd say when I started getting involved with the junior team though, my, Uh that's when my level went way up because I was just climbing with people that were way better than me learning a lot and had amazing coaches. So, um, all that was necessary to
0: improve. Mm -hmm. So you destroyed the comp circuit for a long time. I mean, you were (laughs) kind of like on the top. Did you enjoy the competition? Did you enjoy the spotlight?
2: Yeah. I mean, Competitive climbing and outdoor climbing are two different styles of climbing for me. Mm-hmm. Um, when you go into a competition, it's you're you're going to make a result. You know, it's like your goals, podium, your goals to or, or your goals to win the event. Whereas, like when you're going outside, you're you're not really trying to beat out other people. It's more about for yourself, you know. Um, so I kind of liked. I was attracted to that sense of competition where. It gave me um, an outlet to go and try to prove myself with other people, you know, some of Mm -hmm. the other best climbers around the U.S. or world.
0: And who did you look up to when you were younger in the climbing world?
2: Growing up, I guess I looked up to probably the same people that most people did. I had posters of Tommy on my wall, Chris Sharma, Dave Graham, Fred Nicole, Uh all those guys. I really liked James Litz's style of climbing Uh a lot. Um, I liked how he, he had this really robotic, um, style to him, super strong fingers, really good at isolating holds. And I, I kind of could relate to that style. And so that's like what I practiced when I was climbing in the gym. I was like, I want really strong hands. I want to be able to do a bunch of one arms. I want to be able to control whatever movement is presented Mm -hmm. before me. So,
0: and as you came up through the climbing circuit, was it weird climbing next to (laughs) them and competing against them? That must've been bizarre, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, I remember, I'd say my first contest or outdoor contest that I got involved with was the Phoenix Bouldering Contest Uh from way back in the day, and Sharma was probably like 18 or 19 years old, and I remember like walking side by side with him and kind of looking up and be like, whoa, I I, like know who you are, (laughs) right? I've heard of you at least, I don't know who you are, but... I, I kind of had that, like, starstruck feeling, you know? Sure. Yeah, me too. I remember the first time
0: I met Chris. You kind of have a similar climbing style as Chris. You know, real powerful. Yeah. Um, real dynamic. He's just a little taller than I am, so... Yeah. How, much, how much taller is he?
2: Um, I mean, I'm, like, 5'7", five, 5'8", five, and uh-huh. I have a positive ape, and Sharma's probably, probably, like, six foot with a positive, so... Yeah, (laughs) a little difference there.
0: (laughs) So you became famous in the climbing world at a young age. How did Mm -hmm. that affect you?
2: To be honest, I don't think I really understood it enough for it to affect me. I was just stoked that I could get supported through Mm -hmm. companies to go and do what I love to do and climb. Um, Definitely, when I was younger, I didn't notice it, but when I started hitting like 16, 17, 18, and then sponsors were like here's here's more money here's this to go and do this Uh i i started feeling a pressure to like go out and perform and be like well if i want to keep this as like my job as well i need to keep pushing standards and like having myself known out in the world you know so I had to just learn how to balance that because ultimately it's like I climb because it's my lifestyle, my hobby. Uh-huh. It's what I enjoy doing. And money's just kind of the icing on the cake that comes with it. Sure. So I can continue doing it. So
0: is climbing as a career, does it make climbing less fun Um, or more stressful?
2: It definitely makes it a little more stressful for sure. Um, but it doesn't take away the fun of it. I mean, i know the reasons i climb and even if i didn't get supported i would still climb i would just find a job you know but i think if i had climbing taken completely away from me i would kind of go insane in the head like i wouldn't feel like my person
0: (laughs) growing up here in colorado obviously a large (laughs) portion of uh people out here are climbers Mm -hmm. or outdoorsy they kind of follow you know, the outdoors. For sure. When you were in high school, did your classmates know that you were this like big time rock climber and do you feel like they treated <laughs> you differently?
2: They definitely knew I climbed. Um they knew I was winning competitions and mm-hmm. They more got the competition side of things, the outdoor, like with, if I was like, I just went on a trip and did a V14 or something, they didn't really understand that, Uh but they knew like, they definitely knew that I was one of the top climbers, but since most people back in the day, all they got was like skateboarding or team sports or whatever like that, I don't think they fully, they were like. They're more surprised, like, oh, you can actually survive off of climbing. Like, Uh you just climb rocks all the time. What what does that mean? How does that work? Totally.
0: (laughs) So I spend my winters in Las Vegas. I'm a climbing guide out there. Oh, perfect. And uh, I climbed over at Red Rock Climbing Center a lot, Uh and I would see Alex Honnold there.
2: Oh, nice. And he said he
0: really loved the gym, even though the gym's pretty old school. Yeah. And I think it's because he doesn't get approached a lot there. So, you know, I wonder as a recognizable, uh, professional climber, if you get approached a lot at the gyms and if it's annoying, or how you deal with that?
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think so like back in the day, I definitely didn't get approached as much cause climbing wasn't as big, but yeah. now like more gyms are getting installed. And, um, even if I go to like movement, in boulder or brc or something people will come up and be like oh like can i get an autograph or kind of like watch like i'll have people just sit there and watch me climb and, <laughs> <Yeah. stuff. laughs> and then it's definitely when i travel outside of colorado it's like like people come up all the time but to be honest it's like i have just learned how to like accept it and uh-huh. i know like they're not judging me or anything sure. or maybe they subconsciously are but whatever <laughs> i can't control that but my whole goal is just to like share my passion of climbing with them. And if I'm stoking them out, then that's awesome. Cause that means they're just going to get stoked because of that. So yeah, it's climbing is a beautiful lifestyle. And I, my goal is also for people to come and know that climbers are friendly and stuff. They're mm-hmm. easily approachable. Like it's a good community to be a part of. And, um, so yeah, it's the whole goal is just to like accept people to come and not deny them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So what do you do when you just don't want to be approached by people?
2: Um, I go to gyms that are private. <laughs> <laughs> if I, if I'm in a mood where, I mean, I've definitely, I've had times where I've gone into movement and I had this like three hour intensive training program that I was about to execute. And then people come up and start talking yeah. and it steers your focus away from like what you came to do. And but now I've just realized, like, if I need to train, I'm going to go somewhere that's private, and I can just get my stuff done with my friends, and then we can move on from there.
0: You're really known as a boulderer. Uh-huh. <laughs> and recently, you've been ticking off all these hard sport climbs. Why the change from bouldering to sport climbing?
2: So, actually, I started out as a sport climber. Okay. Um, I I bouldered to just... I mean, bouldering's always been viewed as practice climbing, so uh-huh. I bouldered to get strength so I could go do some harder, harder sport routes. And then I just kind of developed a love for bouldering. And then I stopped sport climbing and just focused on bouldering for many years. Mm -hmm. And now I'm kind of tapping back into my sport climbing roots and just, uh, yeah, just trying to switch things up and have a different experience.
0: And what's, like, kind of the difference between the two mentally and physically for you?
2: Yeah, um, there's actually a pretty big difference. I think mentally sport climbing is a lot harder for me. Uh I'm not, like, I'm learning that my attention span doesn't really last so long. So if I'm climbing a 30 to 50 meter pitch, like, the moves are hard, but just easy enough compared to boulder problems where... I start almost getting bored and my head starts wandering and then I fall because I'm not actually present and in, in the zone, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I've, I've learned, I'm, I'm having to learn to be able to grow my mental strength and the best way is long sport routes.
0: Uh-huh. You ticked off La Capella, uh, 515 B mm-hmm. in Spain in a <laughs> week. <laughs> and crushed a bunch of other climbs in Spain on a recent trip. What did you take away from that experience?
2: It was, it's kind of funny because so my first trip to Spain was two years ago. My whole goal was to climb longer routes. Uh-huh. And this trip, I was like, I'm going to pick shorter, more resistant routes, something that's going to be more my style, but I'm going to try harder lines and see if I can get them done. So La Capaya is only like 15 meters long. Um, it's basically three boulders stacked on top of each other. And same with first round, first minute, it's super short. Mm-hmm. Um, there's it, like, as you pull on or when you pull on, you have like a couple minutes before you're going to get pumped and you're off the wall. So you're, I, I can approach those routes. Like I do a boulder problem. So mm-hmm. for me, that was like an easier transition. Now it would be kind of cool to like focus in and do some longer, harder sport routes. Cause it'll just be a different challenge. Yeah.
0: And like with La Copeia and like mm-hmm. something, a boulder problem like Jade V16, yeah. how do those compare? You're Jade's V14 now. Oh, it is? Yeah. Oh, it got downgraded. <laughs> it got downgraded. Okay. Well, with other, you know, really hard boulder problems. Yeah. You know, how do those compare? Do you have to spend more time on the sport climbs than the bouldering or?
2: Since I know how to boulder right now, when I approach a La- lot, I think the reason I did La Copeia so fast is because I've done, it's... In all, La Capella is like a really long V15 boulder, uh-huh. and I've done numerous V15s. Yeah. And so when I saw La I was like, I could probably do the same quick. It's my style of climbing. Um, there's, no, I don't have to learn much here, you know? I mm-hmm. just got to like... The, the only thing in the, my head was the grade of 15B, which can also be intimidating, because it sure. was something I hadn't tapped into before. But yeah, I mean, with bouldering, it's my comfort zone. Like, I conditions matter for me if the conditions are good i get this surge of power and yeah. i know i'm going to execute
0: is that why you climb at night a lot
2: <laughs> sometimes yeah <It's>, uh, <laughs> i'm i'm all about chasing like when the climb is going to be the best during what part of the day and stuff like mm-hmm. that looking at weather reports and stuff sure so,
0: <laughs> so you mentioned first round first minute yeah you know why do you want to get that climb so bad? Why is that on your tick list?
2: To me it's this like fine it's a route that's a fine line between bouldering and sport climbing. Uh-huh. It's just long enough. I think it's like 35 to 40 moves um where I would classify it as a sport climb, but the nature of it is super bouldery. So that's what attracted me to it is as soon as you pulled on, you're continuously moving to the top. Like you have to develop a good rhythm. You have to be in strong bouldering shape Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And also it's a pretty legend route from Chris Sharma. And that was like maybe the second 9B or 15B that was established after Jumbo Love. Also... Uh, just the the hold types, the movement on first round is really appealing. It's super steep. There's cool like foot pinches on it, pockets. There's a pretty savage mono at the top, mm-hmm. so it has like every style of climbing and hold type.
0: Yeah, I saw you projecting that, and you took a fall and actually <laughs> yeah. broke a beaner. Did that freak you out?
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't think I've ever done that before. <laughs> yeah, I've
0: never seen it before. That's
2: crazy. <laughs> but um, yeah, I don't it. And for one, it wasn't, like, the weakness of the beaner. I'd, I definitely, like, um, the way... It, it wasn't my draw either. It was another person uh-huh. working first round. But they had some tape around the webbing to, like, make the beaner tight yeah, yeah. to the webbing. Uh-huh. Um, and then the beaner got cross-loaded in the bolt. So okay. when I fell, I fell on a cross-loaded beaner. And then it just disintegrated. Jeez. But it was... I, I remember... Cause you, I skip a bolt in the crux and I remember falling and then I just kept falling. And then I was a foot above the ground and I was like, uh, (laughs) like this is weird, but luckily, yeah, luckily nothing bad happened.
0: (laughs) You've climbed with Dave Graham a lot. I've seen Uh you in a lot of videos with him. Have you guys been friends for a long time?
2: Yeah, I, I first met Dave probably when I was 16 during a Petzl rock trip in Squamish and yeah, he was super friendly. I liked his style. He just had a personality, you know, like he, he's pretty intelligent and knows a lot about different things. Um, but in an eccentric way, you know, very eccentric, (laughs) a lot of sci-fi going on, a lot of sci-fi and I don't know. I was just like, I was attracted to his motivation and his passion for climbing and, I was like, well, this guy would be the perfect person to go travel with because he's motivated, he's going to get me stoked, hopefully I can get him stoked. And mm-hmm. and then after that, it just kind of evolved, you know? And yeah. Dave was running around, finding these areas, showing me projects that he found. And oh. it, it's always been this really good, like, friendly team dynamic. We've never, there's never been this weird competition struggle between us.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so back in December of 2017, I re- Remember checking out your Instagram and you had a post uh-huh. that 2017 was the worst year ever <laughs> yeah. because of a DUI and a divorce and an yeah. MCL injury. It was actually quite <laughs> inspiring to me because I've made a lot of those same mistakes. <laughs> I think and a I've lot had of some really do. bad years. <laughs> yeah, um, but it was cool that you kind of just came out and said, "Hey, this is what's happened to me. It sucks, but I'm moving forward." How did that? Uh, well, how did 2017 and those events affect you, and what did you learn from it?
2: I don't know. Like we all deal with things differently and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think I, bef- like before all that stuff happened, I had in my head, I was like, cause that's when I separated with my ex and I was like, okay, I'm free now. Uh-huh. I'm invincible. I'm just going to do whatever <laughs> I want, you know? And, Been there, but then it like kind of caught up to me after a while. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I found myself actually like drinking more than I normally do and stuff like that. And, Um, like going out a lot more and not really focusing on my climbing, but I was, I lost track of my identity, you know, it's like, I was like, I was, I had this like, fuck everything mentality. Sure. And then I kind of knew, like, I think when I got the DUI, that was like my wake up call. I was like, okay, look, like you're not invincible. Like you're, you can't disobey the law and you're also Mm -hmm. like a high profile figure so that's probably not gonna look that good (laughs) on you you know but it was good because it like i mean i had i sobered up and i didn't drink for like three months because i was being drug tested and stuff Uh so um so it just allowed me to like have a sober head and to really think things through and kind of get my shit together and now it's great because i i mean i still go out with friends and drink and stuff Uh but i'm not like like climbing is my priority, like mm-hmm. pushing myself. And I know like, if I'm not, <coughs> if I'm not able to be healthy and, um, be completely there in my head, then I'm not going to be able to push myself. And that's more important to me than just getting messed up all the time. So, yeah, totally. um, so it was good. Like going into 2018, I was like, I already had in my head, I was like, you need to have a balance and know how to like go and have fun, celebrate something that you're proud of, but then Mm -hmm. also get back to work and like, and go out there and like keep pushing yourself. Yeah. And
0: has 2018 been a a better year so far?
2: Yeah. 2018 (laughs) has been a way better year. I'm, I don't have a breathalyzer in my car. (laughs) I, (laughs) I can, I have freedom to travel now and I can, I can actually go and do what I'm like meant to do. And, um, yeah, it's. I, I had a really good trip to Spain. I'm about to go to South Africa in three days and go straight into bouldering mode. And I cool. have a lot of boulder projects I'm stoked on. And yeah, and it's still early on in the year, so hopefully it turns out to be good even till the end.
0: Are you going to South Africa with friends, or is it like a sponsor's trip?
2: Um, so I'll be going to the Rocklands with my friend Sean Rabatu. Mm-hmm. Um, his sister Brooke will be going. Another friend, Stefan. And then um we have an Italian friend, Giuliano Cameroni, who's yeah. really strong. Um he'll be joining us. And uh Dave will be out there, cool. my friend Chad, his girlfriend Isabel. So we have like a pretty good crew nice. headed out. So I think, yeah, the vibe should be good. <laughs>
0: yeah. And you've been going to South Africa for a long time now, huh? Yeah.
2: This is this might be my fourth trip there. Cool. Um I took two years off. I just needed to like Um, I just wanted to climb some stuff in the park, take a break from that travel and but now like all this new stuff has gone up, new zones have been found, so it'll be yeah, it'll be a good experience. I'll just be able to go and repeat a bunch of stuff, climb on some new projects and just try
0: to level up. (laughs) Cool. Saw on Instagram that you have some new ink. Yeah. (laughs) So how many tattoos do you have? What what tattoos do you Um, have? Um
2: I just I have two at the moment, but the thing about tech t- tattoos is they're like pretty addicting. So yeah. I'm already like, I'm like, Oh, maybe I want this for my arm. I want this for my leg. <laughs> and, but when that starts creeping in, I like, I'm like, okay, think about these a little bit. Like, do you really <laughs> want what you're about to put on your body? Um, but at the moment I have on my right side, it's a lion cause, um, in astrology, I'm a Leo. Okay. But this, I got when I was 18 it's tribal I would have done it way different now so that's why it's good to think about I think them. a lot of people got <laughs>
0: tattoos like that because of that I think a lot of climbers started getting <laughs> tattoos on their side did you realize that?
2: Did I kind of did. Yeah. yeah. Like, they're like, oh, it's okay to get tattoos and be a climber. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> nice. So I'm setting a trend You're a trendsetter for sure. Sick. <laughs> well, next will be the neck tat. We'll
0: see how many of <laughs> yeah. those. Yeah. So you have a skull though, right? A new I skull? Have,
2: I have this giant skull on my side and okay. then like in its mouth is a black widow. Um, okay. My friend Hunter Damiani, um, uh-huh. he did the black widow and he did the skull. Um And I I told him to do a skull just because that's what he specializes in. He's uh-huh. really good at those. Cool. I don't know. This one, I don't know if it... Maybe it has some meaning to it, I guess. Like, the, um, the Black Widow is just like... I don't know. I've always been into them when I was young. Kind mm-hmm. of a dangerous spider, you know? Totally. And then the skull is like behind its... I guess that kind of represents like my dark side. Like, uh-huh. all the bad shit that I've done and kind of a reminder to just like not revisit that you know and like keep that balance up to date um but ultimately i got these tats just for art pieces you know Mm -hmm. like my friend hunter's like he has this weird like trippy style to him and it shows in his artwork so i kind of wanted this like like skull that was looking like it was coming out of my body and stuff Uh. and i just wanted it to be different than the tribal totally totally (laughs)
0: So there's been a lot of controversy with the whole Joe Kinder, Sasha DeGillian. Yeah. (laughs) As a, you know, high profile athlete, has that affected how you see your role in the industry?
2: Um, I mean, I guess it's allowed me to see what can happen um, Mm -hmm. when something like that happens. Yeah. Yeah, I guess in general, like... I guess professional athletes have to be pretty careful, you know, like we're held on this pedestal and it kind of, it does suck that we're not able to have the ability to kind of say whatever we want without yeah. getting harsh judgment. Totally. Um, because in general, everyone should be just held to the same standard, you mm-hmm. know, like Absolutely. pro athletes shouldn't be, but the reason we are is because we're in the limelight a lot more you know like we're we're the face that represents our companies our sport and so if people that aren't are just getting into climbing or something sees that this athlete's done so and so then sure it's it might like make that company look bad and stuff like that so you just have to be careful um but yeah that was some crazy stuff just because i'm I'm good friends with Joe, you know, like Mm -hmm. I've known him since I was young. I know Joe's like not a bad person at all. Like he, he definitely has a dark sense of humor, but Mm -hmm. so do I, so do a lot of my other friends. And so do a lot of people out there in the world. Um, It's just more of knowing when it's right to let your dark humor show, you know, and knowing when to hold it back. Mm -hmm. So I think that's where this all got blown out of proportion is some, some stuff just got out there and then it was pretty serious, especially what's going on in America right now with the whole gender equality and racism and all that stuff, Mm -hmm. you know? So I think that, I I think it's good that attention was shown because people definitely need to treat each other good. You know, it's Mm -hmm. like we're, we're put on this earth to work with each other, to bring each other up and, and try to accomplish cool things. But we definitely are human and we slip up sometimes mm-hmm, you totally. know so <laughs> yeah
0: you've been a professional climber for a long time how do you keep it fresh and exciting
2: yeah um i think now um the best way to keep it fresh is just flipping back in between different genres of climbing you know mm-hmm. it's like i whenever I find myself getting bored with bouldering, I'm like, okay, it's time to switch over and let's climb some roots. Let's have a different experience and vice versa. The next step will be probably getting into some track climbing, you know, cool. like just having a different experience. Uh-huh. Um, and then also comps are different. So yeah. it's pretty easy actually to stay motivated. Like uh-huh. also too, uh, just, ha- I have like some pretty, Sick friends to be able to hang out with and climb, and mm-hmm. and then sh- like seeing their motivation, their pat, their passion. Helps keep my spark going, you know, and and then if I see someone do something from Europe or Asia or South America, you know, or whatever, it's it's like oh that's cool. Like everyone around the world's trying hard right now, and it, I, like I need to level up now. I need totally. to like continue trying hard. So
0: what with like you and Maddie Hong and yeah. Jonathan Segrist, you guys are just like destroying it now. Like five fifteen B's, like no big deal. <laughs> I mean, I imagine it's you good. guys are kind of like building on each other's psych and motivation. And- for sure. trying to keep up with the Joneses.
2: Exactly, it's good.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um so when you're not climbing, what do you like to do? Do you have other hobbies and?
2: Yeah, so um when I'm not climbing during the summer, I usually skateboard a lot. Uh-huh. Pretty into that. Winter, if I'm not on a trip, I'll go snowboard. Uh-huh. Um I'm into I like watching TV series, movies. I should read more books. That's the goal. Um, I should also start learning a new language. That should be the next goal. Um, But also, too, uh, I don't know. I've been... Lately, I've been motivated to, like, getting in closer with my sponsors that I'm working with and Mm -hmm. trying to help them out. And, like, especially with Evolve, like, trying to give them ideas for new climbing shoes and approach shoes and, you know, just try and give them content that's going to make their company, like, look cool and people are going to be stoked to go there and get the product and stuff. So um, I think before I kind of just had this, like, athlete mentality. And now I, I want to have that like athlete mentality, but also be like a figure in the company as well. Totally.
0: That's actually an interesting point. You know, like you can't be a professional climber forever. At some point, the young (laughs) kids are going to come up and start climbing harder.
2: Yeah, exactly. How Um, do you see
0: yourself evolving in the industry as you grow older, how old are you, by the way?
2: Um, I August first, I turned twenty nine. Okay, so, so you're still young. You're I'm still, still one young. Of those kids. I
0: shouldn't even ask that question.
2: I can still, <laughs> I can still be an athlete at least for the next like ten years. Ten I mean. years, yeah. You got ten years.
0: <laughs> we'll forget that question. No, no,
2: but no, I. Um, you are right though. There's like I'm only gonna be at the top of my game for however long, you know. Uh-huh. Um, to be determined. But there's gonna be that next generation that comes up. And they're going to be doing stuff that I thought was hard back in the day, and they're going to do it quick and be like, yeah. and then they're going to establish that next level. So my whole goal is, like, I've always wanted, like, a climbing team. I thought that would be so cool, like, like have a company, have a climbing team, be able to support the team, send them to different spots, get a lot of footage, come back, you know. But just be a be a source to where I could, like, employ, like, Like, if you're, like, a 16-year-old kid, you know, and you're like, I just want to go on this climbing trip, Uh be like, here's your plane ticket, here's your car, here's your accommodation, you know, go out, have fun, have a good experience, bring Mm -hmm. back some material, and then we'll, like, blow you up, you know? (laughs) Yeah. That's (laughs) actually um, a
0: cool idea. It's kind of got that, like, surf-skate idea behind it, like, Dogtown, Z-Boys. Yeah, and that's kind of,
2: and, like, I grew up in the skate world as well, and, like, I was, like, some of my favorite companies are Baker in America and they're run Mm -hmm. by Andrew Reynolds and he started out as an athlete then he progressed into like kind of a businessman but he like knew his sport so well and he knew how to target certain people because he knows his sport and then he was able to create the Baker team America team stuff like that and just you know like and now skateboarding's uh like that spawned other people to do the same thing and now skateboarding's one of the larger alternative sports out Mm -hmm. there
0: when you're climbing, do you like to be photographed and videoed, or is it annoying? Or- um, How's I that process? To be
2: honest, I don't even notice it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I Like, I want to be filmed and videoed now, for sure, because it's the more content I can produce for people mm-hmm. out there, like, that's just going to get them more stoked, you know? Totally. Um, and I love going out and being like, okay, this climber does this climb. I can get some beta from him. I can get some stoke, and then I can go to the gym and train, you know? So... If people are down to film, like, yeah, keep it going. (laughs) There's no worries there.
0: (laughs) Any plans to put up roots or really focus on first ascents?
2: Yeah, um, I think so with sport climbing, what I'm kind of doing right now is repeating and getting a feel for like how hard some of these like test pieces are, you know, Uh so I have an idea for when I go out there and I establish something, I can be like, okay, well, i can call this thing 9a plus 9b because i've done i've repeated these other classic lines put up by legend climbers you mm-hmm. know so for the next year or so it'll be more more repetition but i'll be keeping my eyes open for some lines that that jump out and then i'll definitely like switch um mentalities and it would be cool to go and develop a crag you know like develop A place that has all levels of climbing you can like put it on like a topo online or something Mm -hmm. and people can go there and be like okay like the 511 you established was sick the 513 you established was sick so i think that would be that'll be like the next step like later on down is um just like being able to establish
0: cool that's exciting
2: (laughs) for sure (laughs) and same goes with bouldering too like i've kind of i've actually missed like like in Africa, I'll be repeating a few lines, but I'm I'm definitely stoked to like look for some more lines because that whole process of establishing something is like pretty out there. It's good.
0: <laughs> Anywhere you haven't been that you're really itching to get to? Yes,
2: yeah, so I haven't spent much time in Eastern Europe. Like going to Slovenia would be really cool. That's high on my list. Czech Republic. Um, going to Croatia. There's good climbing there. There's some. My friends know of some climbing in Russia, so that would be kind of cool to check that place out. Um, so, yeah, mostly Eastern Europe. I'd be psyched to go back to Japan, spend more time there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also Brazil. Uh, my friend Felipe has a bunch of crags there that he's been climbing at, so it'd be cool to like go and visit that place again, too.
0: You must really love to travel, because as you're <laughs> saying all this, it's just making my head spin. Like, I hate airports. I hate planes. <laughs> I like to drive, but like... How do you to deal with honest, all that travel? I hate
2: airports and I hate airplanes too. Yeah. That's like, that's the worst part of it. But the best part is, um, it, that's also what helps keeps things fresh. You know, uh-huh. like if I stay in Colorado too long, I start, I get tunnel vision. I get claustrophobic. I'm like, uh, like I need to get out of here. I need, <laughs> I need something else, you know? Totally. And so that's, I think that's where my passion to travel comes from and getting to meet new people, and experience different cultures and stuff like that. It's just icing on the cake.
0: Cool. Well, I'm feeling pretty good about this. How how are you feeling? <laughs> it's Anyth- great. Did I miss anything?
2: I guess as of now, my whole goal for the next couple years is I'll be doing a lot more traveling. Mm-hmm. I don't. I'm not renting or anything. Um, so my parents were stoked to have. They they were like, you can stash your stuff at my at our place, and mm-hmm. whenever you're in town, you can stay here. Um, here and there. So, um, at the moment I'm pretty just psyched to be able to pick whatever destination I want to go to and climb as many rocks as possible.
0: Cool. Well, thanks so much for stopping by. <laughs> yeah, no worries. It's been a thanks. pleasure. It's been great. <laughs> All right. That's the conclusion of the show. I want to thank Daniel Woods and Chris Kelman for taking the time to sit down with us. The music was provided by smallhouses at smallhouses.band. And please remember to subscribe to the podcast at Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. If you're feeling generous, maybe leave a rating and review. Alright everyone, see you at the next Bass Camp.